Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Well, I am so happy today to be joined by someone very famous. The Grinch is here to steal our Christmas joy. Uh, Just kidding. Kyle Roberts, my friend, my real life friend, uh, Kierkegaard scholar, theologian, and dean of uh, United Seminaries of the Twin Cities. Yes, academic dean. Academic dean. I do want to mention before we get into this virgin birth stuff that you have been on this podcast before years ago, episode number eight. The episode is called You Have Permission to Be Theologically Liberal or Theologically Progressive. Theologically Progressive. Episode eight. So I'm going to put that link in the show notes. If people want to uh, either get to know you a bit more they can listen to the beginning of that episode where you you tell us some of your story or if they just think that that's interesting because that was a really great sort of far reaching kind of cliffs notes about progressive theology. And so I, I would really recommend that episode so people can check that out if they want to. It's good to have you back, Kyle, even after a very long absence. It's great to be back and uh, it's great to take a break from the mundane duties of administration to talk uh, about the esoteric and conjectural elements of theology. 
So good, good to revisit this conversation with you that began what three years ago. Yeah, seven. yeah, and to uh, and of course, it's always good to steal joy from children around their favorite holiday. No, but I mean, there is a part of me that like really wants the virgin birth to be true. You know, there's a part of me that like wants us to be able to have nice things. <laughs> Yes, and not have them all taken away like everything is believing in Santa or something. I mean, you started your journey with this book. The, the book is called A Complicated Pregnancy. There will, of course, be a link to it in the show notes. It's your, you know, it's it's a little bit memoir, right? It's obviously it's a theological kind of look, but it's also memoir of you saying, I, I went in to defend this thing. And so that's something that we share, that kind of impulse to want it to be true. Yeah, that was really the original proposal was uh, I was going to articulate a kind of progressive Christian way of believing, articulating, nuancing the virgin birth story. I've been influenced by some some of the writings of Karl Barth in that regard. And, and so I went into it understanding what I'm going to do here. And I'm going to make a lot of traditional Christians very happy and progressives relieved that they can also believe in the virgin birth. But the more I got into it, the more I looked at the arguments, uncovered the rocks, the harder it became to, to hold that position. And so the book basically changed. And, and so, yeah, it kind of became a bit of my journey, my story into exploring this topic and having my own mind changed in the process. Yeah. And I'm excited to hear about that. I, I, I want to start a little bit with science. I don't know how much this comes into your own process here, but I want to make sure we cover it because this is kind of immediately where my mind goes these days. So I think about the virgin birth, the, uh, the idea being that like Mary becomes pregnant without having sex with Joseph. But what I know now, especially not only just being a modern human being, but someone who has gone through fertility treatments and, you know, has had to learn a lot more than I ever wanted to know about how it works to that sperm and eggs form embryos and, you know, all that stuff, right? And get genetic testing done for the embryos and, you know, all this all this stuff. I am like, what what are we affirming? Like, are we... If we affirm the virgin birth scientifically, are we saying that Jesus had no DNA from Joseph and that half of his DNA is like pure, like like the Holy Spirit has male human DNA or, or something, you know, like chromosomes, all this stuff. Was that a part of your wrestling at any point? It was, yeah. I have a whole chapter uh, looking at kind of the scientific... I'm no scientist, but it was really fun for me too to to dig into that material. But you know, yeah, the question is, well, where where does the the DNA, where does the other half of that genome come from? Did God just fabricate it in a divine laboratory? And well, this is this is what Joseph's DNA would have looked like had right. Joseph contributed the sperm to you know this process or. You know, what? what is the basis upon which God would have made any intentional decisions about how that DNA would be constructed? Or, or was it all Mary's? Uh, well, that is that wouldn't really work. Right. You can't become a male, biologically male, with all female DNA. And also, you say, on what basis would God make the decision about replicating Joseph's DNA uh, some people might think that there's no decision to be made there, that it's like, no, it just would be the same one. But that's not true. That's why 
siblings are different. Each sperm and each egg has like a, as far as I understand it, basically a random selection of one's genes. Or is it that, or is it that the sperm, when they actually join, the new embryo randomly selects 50% of each? I don't know if it's, I don't know which one it is. But there are, you know, there are differences there between siblings that are from the same parents, right? Right. And and so either, you know, God would have had just to, to set up some random experimental process and see what comes out, or God would have, as Arthur Peacock, the scientist, theologian said, well, what did God think Jesus's nose should have looked like? And then made that decision, you know, on the basis of whatever God thought would be most Joseph-like or um, whatever. So yeah, it, it, what I, what I found is that when you went down all of these different rabbit trails of how could the science have worked, that was one of those areas that we just kind of kept running into dead ends and dead ends and dead ends and saying this, this just doesn't, just doesn't mm. make sense. You know, let's apply Occam's razor here. What's the most simplest explanation as opposed to the most convoluted explanation that will get you to the conclusion that you really want. Right. There's also a theological issue here. It strikes me with the, the concept of the hypostatic union Jesus being fully God and fully man, that there might actually be, given what we know about DNA, that actually you can't, you maybe can't have the virgin birth and the hypostatic union, that you sort of got to pick one. And I was looking up the hypostatic union on Wikipedia, (laughs) first of all, just to make sure I had the term right, hypostatic union. And then also I, I, so I found, I came across this, this text from the Athanasian creed. So here's the quote. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time, and he is human from the essence of his mother, born in time. Completely God, completely human, with a rational soul and human flesh. So they clearly believed that all it took to be fully human was to get whatever humanness you got from being born of a mother. Like, they were acknowledging the fact that, well, it does seem like everybody who's born, they get something from their mother and their father. They're not idiots. They recognize that people look like both parents or whatever. They know that sex has to happen between a man and woman for a person to be born. But they but they get around it by going, well, he must have gotten the human essence from his mother. And then he got the God essence from his father the, you know, God, right? God, the father. And that would have made sense in the third, fourth, whatever century AD, BCE, but it doesn't jive now with what we know as we've been talking about. Like, so you, you either need some other formulation of the hypostatic union or like, cause how do you, how does Jesus be fully human and not have human male DNA? That's the, that's basically the rub. And they didn't think you needed human male DNA when they were forming the doctrine of the hypostatic union. Yeah. So homoousios of the same substance with the father and homoousios of the same substance with humanity, Mary being one that passed on the human nature. The common phrase in the early church was that he had to have taken flesh. Jesus took flesh from the mother. And in in those days, understanding of biology was such that all you really needed was the mother. 
the father didn't really contribute anything substantial of like we're talking about DNA contribution or we're talking about the contribution of, of sperm, which, you know, includes a necessary uh, half of the equation for them, the sperm, the contribution of the male was like a spark right. that set that material that was already there in motion, which made sense given yeah. just looking at the world, like it all happens inside the mother, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So you'd yeah. think, oh, all we're all the guys are doing is like getting the process going. And without yeah. modern medicine, that would be perfectly plausible. Yeah. So the Holy Spirit comes into play. The Holy Spirit produces the spark in the womb of Mary. And that's all you need. Now you have a zygote. That makes so much sense. Yeah. Because like once you start saying like the Holy Spirit impregnated Mary, which is is that old school? Like, is that original language that has just made it? Or is that like a modern like a modern translation of a term to say impregnated. I think that's a modern okay. uh, imposition. Yeah. Cause that kind of language starts to sound kind of weird, but if you just think of it as it, it is a spark plug in an engine or whatever, you know, it is an ignition. It's the ignition. It's the pilot light on your water heater. You know, you click, you get the pilot light going and then the heater will heat up the water. Yeah. It's all ready to go. You just have to light the pilot Yep. Now, that that's still interesting because there's still more than that, right? Because if that's all that the man does, then that's all that the Holy Spirit is doing, which seems like not enough to get you fully God. Or is it just that Jesus is coming, like the Christ is coming to indwell a human and all the Christ needs is a little opening is, is kind of the idea. And that getting yeah. someone pregnant is not a big thing. In the, in the ancient understanding of it. People get pregnant all the time. This yeah. is just the, you just, you just, he had to get in there somehow, right? I'm, I'm being, I'm being very <laughs> loose in my language. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think there, there was something that gets in there in the early church. Uh, some of these theologians, I think there was actually a, a term that one of them used immaculate immaculate semen or immaculate sperm, this kind of, there, there was something that, that gets in there. And that then, as you say, allows for the creation of this very, very special person, this divine human. And of course, the, the two natures theology is not really obviously present in the gospel accounts. And that's the other thing that I think this discussion is drawing attention to, is that this hypostatic union language that emerges in the early creedal formulations, Nicene, Nicene Constantinopolitan, Athanasian, as you mentioned. Uh, but the, the sense of Jesus as a two natures uh, being is a later contribution, right, to the Christian understanding. It's, it's, it's some, that, that's, that, that's not actually going on necessarily in an, any kind of obvious way in the two gospel accounts. The only places where we actually have the infancy narrative stories Right. So then in that sense, belief in the virgin birth narrative predates any sort of theological nailing down or defining of Jesus as fully God and fully man. Right. That's correct. Yeah. So the earliest Christians who believe in the virgin birth are at the latest 80, 90 AD or something, but probably it's understood that it's probably a pretty widely held belief by that point, if it makes it into both of those 
narratives, uh, you know, M- Matthew and Luke, right? It's not just one of their ideas. It's like, okay, so people are, so early Christians basically believe this. And how would you flesh out that phrase? Early Christians largely believe in the virgin birth. Can you give us a little more nuance? Yeah. And just to, to add to that, it really the second century theologians like Irenaeus, Tertullian, this becomes a part of their rule of faith. Hmm. And so their synopsis of the most, what are the most important things to affirm and believe in, in the Bible included in that is the virgin birth. So I I would just underscore your point by saying in the second century, it, it seems to be a pretty prominent, important idea. Yeah. So how do we get then from Mark knowing nothing about it, apparently, or at least not. Or choosing not to talk about it. It's not, not being important. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or Paul in the the epistles of Paul having nothing to say at all about a virgin birth, mm. apparently not being aware of it. And even using some language to suggest that he may have believed in a fully human conception, Joseph, Mary together so forth. So how do, yeah, how do we, how does that transition happen? And of course the Jesus story has taken off quite considerably by the end of the first century. And you've got these Christian communities everywhere that are are worshiping and believing in the Christ and Jesus. And, and so as with any, many of these really important figures in this time in the ancient world, the origin story needed to match the profundity and power of their lives and teachings. And so naturally the origin story becomes more dramatic and and profound to kind of match align with the importance and profundity of their lives and their, in this case of Jesus and his teachings. So would you say that the the strongest evidence is that Paul did not believe in the virgin birth? I I think the strongest evidence is Paul did not believe in it. Um, and may have not even been aware of that anyone believed in it. That anyone believed in it. What's the language he uses that may infer that he actually did not, that he would have assumed a natural conception? Descended, Jesus descended from the the seed or the spermaticos of David. Mm. So this is Romans 1, and Galatians has also a phrase, the seed of Abraham, I think there he means more like the offspring of Abraham. But how do you, how is Jesus the seed of David when the line of David goes through Joseph, Hmm. not through Mary? Right. So that's not, that actually doesn't hinge on the Greek word, which might not mean sperm. It hinges on the logical order of like, no, it's not Mary that's descended from David, it's Joseph. So there's just no, like, again, this is Occam's razor, right? It's, it would be a big thing to say, well, maybe Paul did know about the virgin birth, even though he never mentions it. And maybe Paul assumed that the Holy Spirit, you know, supernaturally took the seed of David through Joseph and put it into Mary. But that's a little bit of mental gymnastics, maybe. A, a little bit. And some have suggested, well, maybe you have something like adoption going on. So. Mm. Joseph adopts Jesus into the the lineage. It's a cool idea theologically that like even Jesus himself is adopted in, you know, like that. I love yeah. that. That preaches well. Yeah. yeah <laughs> but it yeah. doesn't necessarily make, message. yeah, it's a great message, but it doesn't necessarily make sense of Paul's words. Right. 
Yeah. But I think it also raises another issue, which I've raised in the, in the book is if Jesus was sort of created ex nihilo or de novo kind of from nothing through this um, miraculous intervention of the spirit in Mary, then Jesus is not really, Jesus is not really one of us in the sense that, you know, Jesus was incarnated through the very process through which you and I come into the world as one of our species, not as a new species that then comes to save our species from outside of it. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, that sounds more like a comic book. <laughs> yeah, right? that's right. He's more like Superman. You know, he's like a different species and comes to save our species. But that yeah. really messes with the whole Trinitarian thing. It messes with line of reasoning of like, no, like everything that we go through, he went through, right? Like that's kind of, that ability for us to identify with the person of Jesus because Jesus identifies with our experience would be lost if Jesus is essentially a like semi, like a demigod new species. Yes, that's right. So he, he assumed or he took on our nature uh, so that he could heal, heal us from within our natures, within our species. So yeah, not from outside, but from inside. And, and then if you just want to take it back all the way, not just human nature, but like the evolution of all of life, and just you know, think about the beauty of Jesus coming within that all the way back to, you know, original living cell or stardust yeah. or you want to take the metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. Zo zooming out. Well, I love, I love to zoom out. It's one of my tattoo ideas is something involving the cosmos because I love the idea of, you know, something about contextualizing our moment in this very long, very you know, almost enchanted kind of a story, depending on how you tell it of, yeah, basically stardust eventually coalescing into planets with gravity and then life evolving and, and all these things. And then God deigning to be a part of that God, not pronouncing, well, that that stuff is bad or that stuff's all beside the point. There's a really nice, there's a really beautiful sort of interaction with taking the geologic and cosmological history seriously and then thinking about something like the incarnation. Yeah. It's a beautiful concept and it, it weaves a good story. So what is going on then? You, you kind of mentioned this briefly about, you know, the type of origin stories. This is obviously a term that we know really well these days because of well, the comic book movie craze. And uh, those of us who grew up reading comics that, there's a way in the ancient world that you tell about that you talk about someone's life. And it, honestly, it makes me think of David actually bringing David up. Right. So maybe we could use David as a lens as how this was going on about 700 or so years before Jesus in the Jew, in the Jewish tradition is you've got the story of Jesse and his sons and there's 12 of them. Or is there 12 of them? And like, that Saul keeps going, this one, no, this one, no, this one, no, 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 no. Well, how about this little runt guy? It's David. And it's like, he just like, no, that one is the guy. There's like a, it's a larger than life tale, right? And then, and then he kills a lion with his bare hands, right there. So there's like this stuff you tell about childhood or origins that has a sort of a narrative poetic import to it that matches 
what you're the importance of the figure you are describing, right? Is am I getting that right? Yep. So you have this uh, really wonderful story of fairly insignificant couple, and in particular, Mary, Jewish peasant girl, not well off by any stretch, and they're, they're encountering challenges, difficulties, finding a place to stay. No one will. T- there's no room in the inn, and so forth. But somehow God is visiting them, and and then and then it all comes down to a baby. I mean, that's a, a beautiful story. Uh, that through this insignificant little being, this little human, most vulnerable uh, life in our species that we can imagine, living in the context of the occupied Roman Empire, that through this one, God will bring about salvation for God's people. That will then extend beyond the Jews, um, to the Gentiles, to all the nations. And then from the very get-go, there's there's conflict because this baby is a threat. And so Herod sets out to kill all of the babies, and they were off and running to this, this then great story that then, of course, jumps to his adulthood. But yeah, I, I think that's right. It's, it's God intervening in history, Emmanuel, God with us, bringing about the, the uh, salvation of the Jews, the salvation of the world through them, and uh, through this 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 figure Jesus of Nazareth but what you inevitably end up having to deal with if you use this lens right of these are the way that we need to tell the stories once we've established that this is a person of great import is a it's a backtelling it's a backfilling and that is uncomfortable obviously for certain doctrines of biblical inspiration in that sense, we want these stories to just be accurate accounts. They're not backfilling. We're not, we're not rereading past events through our new lens, although I would say from a psychological standpoint, we literally always are. There's actually no yeah. way around that. You know, so that is – that's already a – like to acknowledge that is already to kind of give up a little bit of the game, right, from from a certain perspective, Right. Yeah, it's not an acknowledgement that the whole thing is false or the whole thing is made up or this is all make-believe or magical storytelling. Hmm. This is the way reality was understood and interpreted. So I guess what I would say, and as I say it later on in the book, there's something between none of this happened to all of this happened. And the fact is not all of this could have happened because the accounts of Matthew and Luke differ on some significant details that they both right. can't be actually um, inherently true, but somewhere between nothing and everything is a mixture of this happened. This didn't happen. Who really knows? But the point is that we shouldn't try to take these stories absolutely literally because probably the first hearers of the oral traditions and the first readers of these written traditions didn't either. They would have interpreted right. them through a kind of lens of of a maybe both and. But I, I mean, I, I don't want to just completely back off of your point because you make a good point that there is some discomfort yeah. for us in kind of acknowledging that, that, yeah, there's a mixture here that some of this, well, maybe the best way to describe this is legend. Uh, with, you know, myth mixed in. But I, I think legend allows for that kind of both and. So, yeah, something happened. And of course, Jesus of Nazareth happened, lived, in my view. Right. And uh, is is a believable, important, authoritative figure for my own faith. And uh, But what we're talking about is this origin story. So in the same way that 
many Christians are very comfortable reading Genesis 1, 2, and 3 through the lens of myth as the origin story of everything. What I'm suggesting is maybe we should also be comfortable reading the origin story of Jesus through a kind of complicated lens as well. No, yeah, I love that. So this relates to something that Pete Enns talks about a lot in his books as an Old Testament guy is you talk to Jewish scholars about all of these prophecies that the New Testament writers connect explicitly to Jesus's life. And they say things like, this is so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. And then da, 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 da. And what he says is like, when you look at it through just a Jewish lens, right? Not assuming that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Most Hebrew scholars do not think that that's what those passages are about. So there is there is some creativity going on, and this is a this can be a really difficult thing for people in their faith change journeys uh, to wrestle with. But is that sort of a similar thing that that to what you're talking about in terms of the way that the experience of Jesus and the creation of the early church? the way that they then rethink about, you know, what must have happened or the stories that they've heard and they sift through that stuff in their memory individually and collectively. And they talk through like, well, what did this mean? You know, was this that Isaiah bit or, you know, like, is that all kind of of a piece in your mind? Yeah. You know, there's that fancy term when you go to seminary census plenty or the fuller sense, the fuller meaning that texts can take on richer, deeper, thicker, intercanonical from Hebrew text, Hebrew Bible, Testament to New Testament. And, and the, the New Testament authors were very free um, to felt very free, obviously to, to interpret or reinterpret these texts and appropriate them, make use of them, see fulfillments in them. But I think sometimes we read fulfillment messages into them that perhaps they didn't intend. But the Isaiah 7 one is a really good example in Matthew, the infancy narrative where uh, Isaiah 7, we have this statement about the the young woman, the, the Alma in the Hebrew is young woman. But in the Greek translation of it in the Septuagint, the Alma, the young woman becomes a virgin. And then it's the Septuagint version, which Matthew is using to write his gospel, apparently. And so he uses... So Matthew doesn't speak Hebrew then, probably. Well, perhaps perhaps not. Or at, at any rate, is did not grow up studying the Hebrew Torah, grew up as a Jewish kid studying the Septuagint, the Greek translation. Just like yeah. I grew up reading an English yeah. language Bible and didn't grow up reading a Greek and Hebrew Bible. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so what Matthew is is dealing with then is reading is this is the Septuagint version in any case, and then using the term virgin, uh, virgin or Parthenos. Wow. So that's a very different meaning from what Isaiah would have meant in uh, his his message. So the te- Septuagint is a mistranslation is what you're saying. And, and basically everybody agrees on this or is that is that controversial well, I don't know if the mistranslation is necessarily the the right term, but yeah, I mean, it's a it's a it certainly creates confusion. Yeah. But I think what 
Matthew's doing is he's taking up that term in any case and making use of it right. in the story that he's telling, which is that Mary is a virgin and is that Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit um, in Mary. Mm. And then that's the, the message that then comes down. And so, yeah, I think it's a creative appropriation of a text, maybe not creative in the sense of strategically intentional, mm -hmm. but yeah. in the sense of that it changes this, the original meaning of the story into something uh, very different and new and fresh and important in this new context, theologically and narratively. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. I feel like I've heard that somewhere, but I had forgotten that the the Septuagint actually pretty meaningfully changes the word there, the the noun. Yeah. Um, but then you could imagine Matthew or whoever first had the idea, someone who went to you know rabbinical school or knew the knew the text well, being like, "Huh, I've heard this story about Mary being you know." Uh, with child from the Holy Spirit. And like, isn't there that bit in Isaiah, you know, right? Yeah. Which by the right. way, I referred to it as the Torah earlier. That's mistaken. I mean, the Tanakh, which is all the books. Just got to keep, keep my nerd, keep my nerd pants clean here. You can technically be either there, I think, but yeah, go ahead. You can call, you can call Isaiah part of the Torah? Uh, well, I, I, yeah, I think you can. Uh, oh, I thought the Torah was just the first five books. I think it's it's sometimes used to refer to mm. the entirety of. Uh, there we go. But I yeah. Well, so I'll, let's double check that. Just fair enough. Sure. Yeah. Um, Have your researchers look into that. Yeah, all uh, my researchers. <laughs> all right, uh, I hereby command all of my researchers to <laughs> look into that. Okay, they're all on it. This week's exclusive to patrons episode is the final official response episode with Tony Jones and I responding to the last two episodes of the Rise and Fall Mars Hill, Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, sorry, Christianity Day podcast, as well as our response to the entirety of the series. Now, they are supposedly going to be releasing bonus episodes on that feed, and it's possible that some of those will feel like the kind of thing that Tony and I feel like we should respond to, and we will continue to do so on the patron-only uh, patron feed when that happens. But for now, this is it. This is the wrap-up of that series. So if you want to hear that episode or any of the previous responses that he and I have done to the various episodes of The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, you can become a patron, patreon.com slash dancoke. It is $5 a month, and it also includes access to the patron-only Facebook group, which has become such a cool online community uh, surrounding this podcast. All right, back to my conversation with Kyle. So I do want to throw this out there. I want to say that there are times when I have thought that Jesus of Nazareth being in reality a bastard child out of wedlock between Mary and Joseph has a kind of theological gorgeousness to it. Mm. Now I know that this is one of the sort of counter explanations is that, well, that's what really happened. 
And so there was pressure in a kind of a Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown sort of a fashion or Elaine Pagel's like a power structure sort of uh, analysis to really push the virgin birth narrative because that covers up uh, the truth, which is that, you know, Jesus was a bastard or whatever. Other than the kind of palace intrigue of that, maybe not lining up with the chronology very well, as you've just have used laid it, you've laid it out. So people are believing the virgin birth story long before the Catholic Church has, exists and has any sort of power. I think it's actually kind of beautiful that idea that like not only is Jesus a human being born in a manger around animal shit, you know, get allows human beings to torture and kill him rather than fight back. Uh, but also he's not even a legitimate son in the kind of purity mores of the time. I find that really beautiful. Did you come across that motif in your research? And, and what do you think about that motif? Yeah, I think it's one of the sort of major options for kind of explaining what's going on in the, the evolution of the story of the virgin birth. The, there's a technical uh, term momzer uh, for bastard. Was was Jesus a illegitimate offspring of an illicit relationship, whether premarital sex, which of course was a big deal in that context and that culture and that day, and a bad thing, really, really bad thing, right? Punishable by death, right? Or or was Jesus the the, the product of rape, a rape against hmm. Mary, either by Joseph or by a Roman soldier. There was Someone a theory else, yeah. out there, right, that was circulated. Jesus was the product of a relationship between a Roman soldier and Mary, which then would have delegitimized his claim to be the Messiah or the Son of God and so forth. So actually, these early apologists were writing, were writing arguments in defense of the virgin birth in the first centuries of the church to, wow. uh, to try to thin that off. But, uh, but I think your, your point is exactly that you were making is, is right, which is that has its own kind of beauty. I mean, there's nothing beautiful about rape. Obviously there's nothing beautiful about beautiful about non-consensual sex. But the point is that if Jesus were in fact, the product of what we might consider, uh, you know, a uh, illicit, or inappropriate, or in some context or some societies, unclean or violent mm -hmm. experience of violence that Mary herself had to undergo suffering. But then Jesus becomes the savior who overturns that violence, who transforms society, who heals the world. Uh, that is its own kind of narratival beauty and theological beauty as well. So yeah, there's there's just interesting books and articles on this question of the, the legitimacy or the illegitimacy of Jesus's birth. Although I think there's a scholar named James McGrath who makes an interest, interesting point that if Jesus were in fact the product of an illegitimate conception, illegitimate relationship, illicit, whatever, then those Pharisees, Sadducees, the religious elites around him would not have been so surprised that this rabbi were cavorting with sinners. Interesting. So that, they're like, well, if if he was illegitimate, 
then that would not be a big deal. Be like, ah, who cares? Right. If he, if he were, le- you know, considered a legitimate rabbi, then then it would, then it was a big deal. The big deal that it did seem to be to many of these uh, religious elites in the gospel stories. Oh, interesting. So, okay. So then what's another option then is what? Something like, look, Jesus was just the child of Mary and Joseph. And after Mary and Joseph were both dead, we get the virgin birth story. So it's not like there's just not really anybody around. If, if, it, if it takes till the 70s, 80s or so, that means Mary, you know, average lifespan in the ancient world is 35 years. That includes infant mortality. So call it 50, something like that. I mean, if Jesus dies in 30-ish, then Mary and Joseph are not living much past 40 or 50 AD probably. So is that another explanation that like there, there's just sort of – it is just a story and it's not – it wasn't a cover-up. It's just like it is a story that resonated with early Christians because of its poetic and theological import that aligned with what they had experienced from Jesus. Is that sort of the simplest explanation? I think that's the simplest one that it really is that over the period of time, as the, the Jesus story becomes more and more profound and impactful as Jesus communities, early Christian communities organically grow yeah, and naturally stories will intensify over the years, over the mm-hmm. generations or the, you know, the decades or whatever. So, yeah, I think that's, that's kind of the most natural explanation and it's what happened again in so many of these other cases of important these important figures and these stories are uh as i said they're few and far between in terms of just being in these two gospels yeah you know contrast that with the story of the resurrection for example which is in all four of the gospels and all over paul and all over paul all over paul the earliest of the new testament texts uh such an important feature. And so it's in, it, it's easy to see why someone like Moltmann would say the resurrection is actually a cornerstone of the Christian faith. Whereas the virgin birth is this additional at, you know, it's really a tack on mm-hmm. to uh, bring a, a significant, profound story, the beginning of Jesus's life. And remember, we've got all these cool stories in the old Testament too, of significant, remarkable births. Mm. And so why wouldn't Jesus also have a kind of divine intervention uh, origin story as well to match those that we see Moses, Samuel, so forth in the, in the Old Testament. But so here's here's my worry, Kyle, is if if we're going to say that, like, yes, it's true that the, the resurrection is the corner is a cornerstone. Like I'll, I'll go ahead and agree with Moltmann, the resurrection, who's by the way, a influential 20th century theologian. If people don't know who he is, if the resurrection is the cornerstone and the virgin birth is an add on, if none, like what if nonetheless, both of those claims, stories, whatever are functioning basically on the same psychological principles of individuals and groups such that, Claims get blown out of proportion over time. They get, you know, expanded or whatever. So it happens first with the resurrection. It's more important. Obviously, Paul believes it to be sort of like, if that's not true, then what the hell are we doing here? But so what's 
what's to keep, you know, the slippery slope in to use it in a, uh, and I think of maybe an accurate way for once, uh, what's to keep, you know, applying the same logic and just saying, well, yeah, the whole thing's bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and people do that. Some people, many people, those two stories are on the same plane. And, and I've, as I was writing the book, as I was uh, putting my argument together as, and then the book came out and that was, I made that distinction. Said the resurrection is different. It's different in kind, and it's different in the way that the virgin birth, which is really technically virginal conception, the virginal conception, the virgin birth, is uh, in con- inherent conflict or tension with the notion of the incarnation. Yeah, as we've talked about. As we've talked about. So that's a that's an inherent problem to Christian theology. Right. I don't see the same inherent problem at all or tension with the notion of the resurrection. No. In, in fact, like this is what trip our friend trip says is like the, the miracle is the incarnation. If you believe in the incarnation, the resurrection is not a big leap. Yeah. Right. If God is uniquely dwelling in Jesus of Nazareth and something super weird and different happens when that person dies, that makes sense. It's the part of God dwelling in him that is the, that's the leap. That's the article of faith. Right. Yeah. And, and in this, in this very, you know, unique, remarkable, distinctive way from the way that God dwells each and every one of the rest of us uh, and so forth. But yeah, I, that, you're right. Once you've made that, that leap, because the, the resurrection then is not, it's not like humanity becomes, well, humanity does become something different, I suppose, in the incarnation. But that happens to all of humanity. It's it's not this grand exception that has all of these these uh, complicated, inherently conflictual. You know, why would only Jesus experience the virginal conception? And it's impossible that it could happen to any other human being. But what we're saying in the resurrection is if Jesus experienced resurrection, or we will all experience resurrection, that's just something that will. That's that's just a transition to what it means to be human. That's the next stage. Right. That's how Paul talks about it for sure. Yeah. That's right. Jesus is the first fruits and we are all to follow. So it's not, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. So l- let me summarize that. So the virgin conception, the virginal conception is like, oh, there's this one guy that didn't have to have male sperm and every other person who's ever lived has to have male sperm until- yep. Perhaps maybe we can artificially recreate that, you know, or clone people or whatever. But, you know, basically, right. Whereas the resurrection is saying like, no, God has a plan for the entire cosmos, which includes humanity and probably all life on earth. And to use N.T. Wright's language, the inbreaking of that plan begins in Jesus of Nazareth. And then we get a taste of what's to come in what we see with Jesus. Yeah. Which is, yes, that is different in kind. It's just a, it's a totally different kind of a claim. It's still the kind of thing that I really struggle to believe is true, you know, but I do, I recognize it as the core claim of my faith tradition that, you know, is inherently bound up with the rituals, practices, beliefs, you know, prayers, community, Stuff that I find so helpful and uh, so 
anchoring and clarifying and you know all of that. So I just I just hold that tension. But yeah. I I do I do take your point that they are quite different in kind. But yeah, it's it's an article of hope. It's not a it's not anything that any of us have ever experienced or observed or uh, have scientific verification or proof that oh yeah well this could happen because da da da. da. It's so it, it's it's again yeah it's, it's a hope, but it's a hope that is firmly fixed in the Christian story and the Christian imagination from, again from a very very early time, and the incarnation. If you just think about it from the terms of prag- pragmatism. Okay, like a philosophy of things, things are more believable if they work, if they have some kind of psychological function or, you know, some kind of real apparent payoff, if you will, or workable function. The virgin birth doesn't have that. It it just really doesn't because you can believe in the incarnation without it. You don't need the mechanism of virgin birth. So what is its function really? Well, it had a function in the first century. It underscored this dramatic interruption of God into history and so forth. But it doesn't have the same function now. And in fact, its function is inherently problematic, as we've talked about. But the resurrection, it has this incredible function. Whether you believe in a literal immortality or not, if you believe in some kind of resurrected life, some kind of resurrected experience, some rich meaning of resurrection that has real psychological payoff that uh, not a bodily you don't need the bodily resurrection necessarily right uh, to be literal so maybe that's a important distinction yeah i feel like that is a can of worms or a road that we don't have time to go down the uh, different types of resurrection i will need to that that does need to be an episode at some point uh, yeah. I will. Uh, if anybody has a guest idea, please email me. Someone that would be a great guest to talk about the various ways people uh, in the present day can think about resurrection. But yeah, I, I do. I take your point there. I do want to talk about original sin a little bit because this is one of the things where it has played a function. It has had a big function or role, right? So correct me if I'm wrong, but Augustine basically goes, "Well, I'm got. I'm, he's working on this idea of original sin. He thinks." It must be passed down sort of sexually through reproduction. That that must be the mechanism. And it starts with Adam and Eve. And if we are all descendants of them, then it's got to be somehow. And so maybe it's in the sperm from the man. And so maybe then this is how Jesus doesn't get original sin. And, you know, that has a certain sort of logical simplicity to it. It also makes very little sense today with what we know, but it's held a lot of sway over time. I mean, is it still like, is that still official Catholic doctrine or Orthodox doctrine? Or, I mean, what do you, what can you tell us about? And first of all, let me know if I got that wrong, but what can you tell us about Augustine's idea? Well, I can tell you that it's had a, a tremendous impact on not just Catholic teachings or Catholic doctrine, but Protestant as well by and large, from kind of Reformation onward for sure. But, you know, Augustine's influence is far-reaching in Christianity on this point in particular. So the, the story of the fall of Genesis 3 is is then interpreted through this very, uh, you, you might say, literal understanding of what the implications or the repercussions of the fall were and how that sin is transmitted Romans 5, and so you could say 
Paul had something to, to do with it, but really more so Augustine's interpretation of Paul in Romans 5. But yeah, it's, it's um, I, I think there's something actually very important about the idea that is sort of behind or is communicated um, that sin is, it's not just that we are born into this kind of uh, slate, this state of innocence where we could potentially just kind of Pelagian-like uh, choose a completely sin-free, virtuous life if we just had enough integrity to, to, to make right choices. Rather, we're, we're kind of born into this tragic scenario, this tragic situation in which the structures of society, you know, incline us toward often behaving badly. And um, we, we, have, we have a lot to fight against. We have a lot to work against simply because of the social structures in which humanity exists and, and that we perpetuate. Yeah. And also where our survival and scarcity mindset come into contact with the goods of other people. Right. Yeah. So there. So the fact that we evolved to survive at almost all costs can become immoral and exploitative. Right. So, you know, yeah. any any post-apocalyptic fiction does a good job of showing this. People will join roving bands of bad people <laughs> to stay alive and they will exploit and kill others, eat them, you know, do whatever they got to do. And so that is also you know, there's the systemic uh, angle. Of course, I agree with you. And there's the individual angle. These are much better ways, in my opinion, of understanding original sin than some sort of weird substance thing. But it's kind of crazy how long that's stuck around. Yeah, yeah, it really is. But I do wonder if if one reason is just, well, we have to have some way of explaining uh, the empirical reality in which we find ourselves. Was it one of the Niebuhr's, you know, who said, just look around, that's the proof of original sin. Right. Read the newspaper or, and so there, there is that, but I, I just think it's helpful to reframe it in this evolutionary way. Yeah. And to, and I think we can easily read actually Genesis three in in light of evolution, that humanity evolved, homo sapiens evolved at some point to have cognitive capacity, not just for the instinct to survive, but to be uh, tribal, to be manipulative, to be deceitful, to be uh, yeah. aggressive beyond necessary survival instincts. So great, great capacity for both good and evil. But, you know, where does all this fit in with the Mary story and Jesus story is that the story then with uh, under the, the influence, if you will, of Augustine's theory of the transmission of original sin through seminally through the semen, literally, is that it took on a just a, an, an intentionality that was never there again in the gospel stories and made made it something it was just not intended to be so and and i think there are a lot of problems theologically with locating the emergence of sin in an individual at their own conception yeah infant is inherently sinful at conception or at birth yeah at conception yeah yet another problem yes Well, so, okay, I, I kind of want to, I want to move towards wrapping up. I want to ask you two questions. Uh, and the first is about your own kind of faith journey and how this work has changed your theology or your lived expression of your faith. So you went in planning to affirm in some sort of like 
reinterpreted progressive way, the virgin birth, you ended up realizing like, I can't do that. It's way too much mental gymnastics. Occam's razor compels me here to just say that this was, this is an addition and it's unnecessary to basic Christian theology. What about your own practice of, of Christianity? You know, how did that clarify? Has it changed the way you approach the Advent season, you know, celebrate Christmas from a faith perspective? Oh, uh, yeah, I'd say it, it, the Grinch stole Christmas. Where's Jesus in the manger scene? You know, uh, no, I would say it's definitely made the experience a bit different. But for all the reasons that I've kind of we've been talking about throughout, it doesn't mean that I no longer believe that Christ is the unique uh, manifestation of God in the world, that Christ is my savior, that uh, I worship God through the, the portrait, the picture of Christ as the son of God as well, Trinitarian theology, uh, all of that. None of that's actually changed for me. Again, you don't need a virgin birth to have an incarnation. I still have an incarnation. In fact, my view of the incarnation has been deepened my view of God and my appreciation for the incarnation has uh, also deepened or intensified. So it's, it's not actually made say the Christmas season less festive or uh, created these real problems for me when I, 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 if I'm in church and we're reciting the apostles creed or the Nicene creed, I can do it the same way I can cite the words about Christ ascending into hell. And I don't even know what the hell that means. You know, it's just, I'm part of this, this tradition. This is where I am spiritually and theologically. Uh, I take my place kind of within this, this story and and not story as in, again, that it's all false, but story as in this way of understanding and interpreting and experiencing the divine God in my own life. So it's not, it's actually not less meaningful at all to me. You say a little bit more about how it's actually made the incarnation more meaningful. I mean, do you just mean that as you dug into all this stuff and you saw sort of how the virginal conception was at odds with uh, some of these claims that, that that gave you, that through that study essentially and, and sort of working out your own thoughts on it, that that sort of deepened your appreciation for the incarnational tradition in the in Christian theology, or or is there more to it than just that? Yeah, well, think about Jesus Christ as the human persona of the eternal divine Son of God coming into the world. So Jesus Christ being born into the, into the as Jesus Christ, Son of God, born as Jesus Christ into the world through human sex, a mother and a father. That is kind of mind-blown in a way that actually the miracle story is is not. I mean, that's mind-blowing in a different way. But to imagine Christ Jesus as the offspring of normal biological human procreation uh, has, I think, a, a power, an imaginative power, a spiritual power, significance. Again, to this point of incarnation, Jesus really, truly is one of us really, truly assumed our nature, became human, entered into our life in the fullest way, yet while retaining this distinctiveness at the same time, this divinity. And so, well, then how did the divine and the human interact and so forth, yada, yada, go down that path. But uh, but that's what I mean, that, that you actually have this really profound 
human element aspect of God, God really becoming human, really becoming flesh. And that to me is, I think, what's what's really devotionally impactful about thinking of the incarnation in this deeper, fuller, richer, more human way. Do you have any practical tips uh, as, you know, Advent approaches for like ways that people can, you know, for those of us who celebrate Christmas in a theological sort of a way or attend services around it, you know, like any, any tips for focusing on the incarnation rather than getting distracted by the virgin birth language? Like, are there ways that you think about it that sort of help you kind of train your focus a bit? Oh, yeah. You know, I think just maybe maybe the the practice is less about, well, what do you do with manger scenes? Although there are pretty some creative manger scenes out there and some provocative ones. Mm-hmm. If you really reflect on the humanity of Jesus, that's a profound Christmas Advent kind of a practice, yeah. I think. What what is what do humans do? And we could think of all the funny things humans do, all the embarrassing things that humans do, all of the quirky things that humans do. Not to say that Jesus did all of them, but like let, let's then really contemplate what it would be like for Jesus to really have all of these human dimensions from conception all the way through uh, through death. Mm. And uh, that maybe is the most, I don't know, for me off the top, kind of most practical kind of thing you could do. The Last Temptation of Christ, silly kind of uh, kind of a movie. You can watch Willem Dafoe. Um, oh, it's not silly. It's a great film. It yeah, is, I mean, it's silly it is in, in, the, or... in the top half of Scorsese's catalog. I, I think so. I watched it this year or last year and actually really, really liked it. But I'm not a Bible scholar, so I don't know. You yeah. know. No, but I, I show clips in uh, to my students often when I'm teaching on Christology, or mm-hmm. because yeah, I think it's a it's it's a great way to get your mind out of sort of traditional interpretation or understandings or reception of well, what Jesus must have been this kind of stern stoic figure that mm-hmm. always said the right and the wise thing, and right. you know, what if he was a little wild eyed and crazed at times and kind of going off the deep end? Um, yeah. Uh, that, that's that's kind of fun. But yeah, that, that to me is, is where you can go with it, is to really meditate, contemplate on the humanity of Jesus. Well, and isn't, you know, to me, the manger scene is not like I for a while now, I have I have guessed that the sort of manger flight to Egypt, Herod trying to kill the kids is like a poetic retelling of Moses that it's not it's probably not historical but that there's still immense value in the manger scene. We, we, with or without the virginal conception, there's born into a food trough among animals. There is, so there's the natural world. There is, there's a class element. There is a refugee element. They are not in their own place. They are, the, the word goes out to the shepherds, the local peasants, basically, the local working class, Right. And yet also the the Magi come from distant lands and like proclaim the value of this child, the kind of the lowly and the exalted in one. I mean, like that's all got tons of sort of spiritual and poetic value to it. And you can have all of that without the virginal conception, too. It's not right. It's not just the incarnation that you can get. 
Yeah, that's right. The, the virginal conception is a is a very thin slice of the whole story. And so there again, we're back to, but you can either say none of this happened, mm-hmm. or you can say all of it happened exactly in the way that it's, it says that it happened. The fun place to be is in that mixture and is in that mix and, and uh, to still appreciate and take away from the story theological richness that's there, um, the, the ethical implications, the spiritual implications. And again, isn't that what these gospel writers were giving us? They were giving us these theological portraits and pictures of Jesus and uh, how these stories giving us a way to organize our own communities of belief around these shared stories. So let's, let's, let's talk about them as we're doing right now. Yeah. So I, I just want to I want to end with kind of one thought and get your take on it. It came up for me when you were talking about being in church and, you know, recognizing that, like, this is your spot. This is where you are at currently, theologically, ecclesiologically. This is the tradition that you are embedded in. And I thought, you know, speaking of zooming out and contextualizing ourselves There's a real sort of intellectual theological humility bit to this that I feel very strongly about. Like, and and I could put it this way, given that I, you, all of our listeners, given that we live in a particular time and place, how right should we expect to get things while we are living about the ultimate nature of the universe or God or whatever? Like, and you can include non-religious people in that. Current materialistic atheists will end up being disproven about a ton of the shit that they believe by future materialist atheists, or perhaps most atheists in the future will not be materialist because maybe we'll figure something. I mean, I don't know. Like, we just don't know. None of us have that kind of awareness of of where in the grand scheme of things we will land. What we can do is look 500 years ago and say, look at all the things that they got wrong that we can see now. And if we have a a lick of sense, we have to assume that the same will be true for us. And yet we have this anxious desire to get these things as right as possible. Some of that can be beautiful if it is the thing that we're drawn to, but it can also just be about anxiety and trying to quell that anxiety. And so what would it look like to sort of flip that coin around and say, okay, what I'm anxious about is getting all of this right and knowing it all, but but what if I just acknowledge where I'm at and try and enjoy that and savor it and like enjoy the fact that I am a contextual being at a certain time and place I have been given access to certain types of experiences, certain types of communities and not others. I can't experience everything. I'm not an infinite being. I'm a finite being. So let's enjoy it. Like, so let's do this. Let's be finite uh, and, and lean into it. That's where my mind went. And I felt like sharing it. I don't know if you have any response to that. No, I, I love it. I agree with it. One of the most pivotal, profound moments for me in my act, in my intellectual journey was reading Thomas Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revolutions and just seeing how again and again and again, humanity's picture, understanding of the world from the most, the people you would expect to get it right, the scientists. It's always changed 
and and whatever picture the scientists have now will change again in a hundred years, 200 years, 500 years, be vastly different. It's not to say they were wrong. No. And it was a part of where we got to now. I mean, I, and I don't want to, I do not want to infer at all that that kind of careful scientific thinking is less valuable or equally valuable to just like pie in the sky theorizing. I don't think so. I think the scientific type thinking increasingly is like our best thing we've got. Basically, logic and empiricism are like our two best tools as human beings to figure out what's going on. And, and and I am engaging in it. I think people should engage in it. But when it comes to like celebrating the big moments of life around birth, marriage, death, you know, the seasons and our yearly traditions in terms of holidays and Christ- yeah. Christian holidays and all this stuff, like we don't fucking know. We don't know how to describe the incarnation or if it's real. We don't know that, but like, can we, can we dig our teeth and our fingernails into this life to this spot on the planet that we have been allowed to live this community, these people, these traditions, you know, and get out if it's unhealthy and abusive, of course. But like, you know, I don't, I'm obviously, I'm just preaching at myself here to not need the kind of, certainty and like, because I'm never going to get it. I'm not going to get it. If I leave my faith, I'm not going to get it. If I switch faiths, I'm not going to get it anywhere. It's never going to be that level of satisfying that I want it to be to calm my anxiety about being a situated person with incomplete knowledge. Yes. Relax. Let's relax. Let's do our best. Let's explore and just appreciate life. And uh, yeah, I think that's a, that's a great message to preach. So you're a preacher after all, Dan. Thank you. If only to an audience of one, uh, the, who needs to hear it the most. All right. Well, Kyle Roberts, thank you so much for joining me to talk about this contentious uh, and timely issue. I guess it's like, it's perennially timely, right? It's timely every time uh, around this time of year. Yep. Yep. Um, it is. Uh, thank you, Dan. You're welcome. And uh, it's been a Really fun time talking with you, and just thanks for giving me the time. Yep, and in the show notes are uh, our first episode together, episode eight, as well as a link to your book, A Complicated Pregnancy, if people want to dive into your research and the reasoning around all this stuff more fully. it is, And I should say, it's a short read. It's not a big, it's not like a big tome that's going to take you a year to complete. It's like you could have it on the bedside and, and read it in, I don't know, eight to ten evenings or something like that. If you just want to three or four evenings. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, I don't know how long people, how long you read at night, but I read for like 15 minutes. (laughs) I read it all over again last night in preparation for this, but you read the whole thing. I had a head start because I've, I've read it before. Cause you have written it and read it before. So (laughs) it is a short book. It's not uh, it's not a big thing, but it's, if you find this stuff interesting and you want to dig into some more of the nitty gritty, I definitely recommend picking it up. It's also really, it's a physically a very nice book. They did a very good job with it. You yeah. know, the it's that quality paperback and there's, there's a nice texture on the cover and just, just good work. There's something about, you know, being able to touch books rather than just read them on a, on a screen. So yeah, yeah I, I recommend that you, you try that out again if you have not done it for a while. Thanks to Josh Gilbert for editing this conversation. If you'd like to join the Patreon and have access to two exclusive episodes per month and the patron only Facebook group, you can do that at patreon.com slash Dan Koch. 
and we'll see you guys in two weeks. 